Let's pray. Father in heaven, you sustained me this week as I prepared to preach on the armor of God. I, I knew that uh, it would be a, a gauntlet of sorts of temptation and accusation and difficulty, Lord, and, and yet and here we are. <laughs> Thank you for helping me prepare. Thank you for preserving me. And I ask now that you might give a, a special gift to us. Would you come, Holy Spirit, and uh, open our eyes to see wonderful things in the scriptures this morning. Uh, there's, there, there's so much here, Lord, I, I don't know how to do justice to any one part. So I, I ask that as we take kind of a, um, a 10,000 foot view of this text, that you help us to see it whole and then help us to see how this connects with the rest of the book of Ephesians. And may we leave confidently uh, putting on the Lord Jesus Christ who is our armor, oh God. Come now and teach us. For Jesus' sake, I pray. Amen. Well, this is it. Uh, this is our final sermon in our 22-week exploration of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Uh, we began our study on June 8th of this past year, this year, and are now coming to a close this 23rd day of November, just one week prior to the start of the Advent season. So at the beginning of summer and now on the beginning of Advent, we uh, have been with Ephesians that long. And with an exception here or there, our church has invested roughly six months in this book of the Bible. That's no small investment. And if you were to take nothing else away from our exposition and, and application of this book of the Bible, uh, I hope that it would be the doctrine of union with Christ. If we've said it once, we've said it dozens of times in this series. The heartbeat of Paul's letter to the Ephesians is union with Christ. One way that you could see that is, is that if you just sat down and read all six chapters back to back to back, uh, carefully out loud, it would take you about 20 minutes to work through it. And in those 20 minutes, the Spirit of God would hammer you with this doctrine. Uh, just six chapters, but there are over 60 explicit references to the teaching of union with Christ in Ephesians. Over 60 times in six chapters, we see evidence of union with Christ, either in Spirit-inspired prepositions or in Spirit-inspired portraits. Um, the Spirit-inspired prepositions uh, would be phrases like in Christ and through Christ and with Christ and by Christ. And then the picture paints a thousand words, and so Paul offers at least five of them in this, in this book. There are Spirit-inspired portraits like a head and a body or a king and his subjects or cornerstone and temple stones or really the most exquisite that Christ is the, the husband, the groom, and we, the church, are his bride. If you're a Christian, union with Christ is the fundamental reality of your life. We Christians don't just believe in Jesus, we belong to him. We're not just forgiven by Jesus, we're fused to him. And we're not just justified by Jesus, we're joined to him. Now, that being the case, we have one final reality to handle with reference to union with Christ that we, we absolutely have to see. One final teaching 
that the Apostle Paul would have us to understand, and it's simply this. Your union with Christ brings you into collision with the devil. Your union with Christ brings you into collision with the devil. One way we can say it is this way. Prior to your new birth, you were walking dead. You weren't in collision with Satan. You were in collusion with him. You were not agitated by the evil one. You were in fundamental agreement with him. Ephesians 2, 1 to 3 explains it this way. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desire of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So Ephesians 2, 1 to 3, which Andy Kaler opened for us back in July this past summer, uh, has the first specific reference to Satan in the book of Ephesians. He's called the prince of the power of the air, Ephesians 2, 2. And notice what he's up to. In this case, Satan is at work in the lives of unbelievers to keep them in the dark about the good news of the gospel. Um, Paul explains it even more clearly in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, where he writes, in this case, the, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. It's one of the two great works of Satan in this world. We'll take a look at the second one in just a minute, but this first one is his desire to keep unbelievers in the dark about the glory of Christ. And you, if, you are, if you are with us today and you are in the dark on the authority of the risen king of the universe, I say let there be light. Let there be light in your heart. Come. Come to Jesus who lived in your place and died in your place and was raised for you on the third day. In Jesus' name, live. Satan is at work in the minds and hearts of unbelievers that they remain unbelievers. Now again, this work is completely congenial to the mind and the heart of an unbeliever. Every unbeliever follows their own impulses, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. Now that's one work that Satan does, but the reason we preach the gospel in mornings like this and to one another is that Satan cannot keep you from becoming a follower of Jesus. He can't, try as he may. And when he can't keep you from becoming a believer, he sets about his second greatest work, which is to make your life as a believer absolutely miserable between here and heaven. Paul explains this too in Ephesians 4, 26 and 27, where he speaks, for example, of the temptation to sinful anger. Ephesians 4, 26 and 27, Paul says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Uh, C.S. Lewis deliciously illustrates this point in his classic 
screw tape letters. If you're unfamiliar with the screw tape letters, uh, it's 99 cents on, on Amazon Prime. You could just, I got it this week again, just to have a digital copy. Uh, do that, get that. If you aren't familiar with the book, uh, it's composed of 31 mentoring letters between a, uh, a senior demon named Screwtape and a junior demon named Wormwood. And regarding the changing nature of a demon's work when somebody moves from darkness to light, uh, Uncle Screwtape writes this to his nephew, Wormwood. My dear Wormwood, I note with grave displeasure that your patient has become a Christian. Do not indulge the hope that you will escape the usual penalties. In the meantime, we must make the best of the situation. There's no need to despair. All the habits of the patient, both mental and bodily, are still in our favor. You see how Satan shifts gears the moment someone moves from darkness to light? He has to shift gear. If he wants to remain in the game, he has no other choice. Now, notice, this is it. This is all that Satan does in this world. If you can see these two goals for what they are, you now know all the work of the devil in this life. Ephesians 2, 1 to 3, and Ephesians 4, 26 to 27 encompasses all that Satan does in this world. To keep unbelievers from becoming believers and to make believers absolutely miserable between here and glory. Think about it this way. The two things that you cannot do in heaven are the two things that Satan puts a full court press on in this life. What are the two things that believers can't do in heaven? One is the mortification of sin, Ephesians 4, 26 to 27. And the other is the evangelization of sinners, Ephesians 2, 1 to 3. Sinning and evangelism, they're the only activities that don't occur in heaven. And since they are the only activities that don't occur in heaven, they are the very engagements that Satan sets his sights on in this life. He runs a lean ship. He doesn't waste his time. He's trying to wreck your life in two places. Putting your sin to death, inviting unbelievers to believe in Jesus. You struggle with either of those? He's at work. Now, neither of these were a problem before you became a Christian. But since you came into union with Jesus Christ, you've been brought into collision with the devil. And here in the home stretch of Ephesians chapter 6, the Apostle Paul styles himself as a, as a platoon commander for the local church. I, I was reading and rereading these verses today, these unforgettable verses. It's like Paul's pacing the battlefield like William Wallace at Sterling Bridge, just mustering us, encouraging us equipping us and warning us. So three points today, uh, followed by a postscript, which we won't even be able to touch probably, uh, given the time. But let's start here. When you are in Christ, you have access to spiritual power, and you'll need it in order to wage spiritual warfare. When you are in Christ, you have access to spiritual power, and you'll need it in order to wage spiritual warfare. Uh, follow along with me as I read Ephesians 6, 10 to 13. Ephesians 6, 10 to 13, the Apostle Paul writes, Finally then, be strong in the Lord 
And in the strength of his might, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. So if you're in Christ, you have access to spiritual power, and and you'll need it in order to wage spiritual warfare. Uh, The second to the last time that the Apostle Paul uses the phrase, in the Lord, is right here in verse 10 in Ephesians. He urges us, finally, be strong in the Lord. And in the strength of his might. I trust you see the reference to union with Christ there. We should be experts at this by now. How are we to be strong? In the Lord. In another's strength. In the strength of his might. And then verse 11, we're to put on the whole armor of God. Now even the the command to put on, we should be uh, uh, sensitive to this command by now. We've seen language like this before. Ephesians 4.22 and Ephesians 4.24 call us to to put off our old self and to put on the new self. It's the visual image of clothing, taking off the clothing of sin and putting on the clothing of Christ. But the particular clothing that Paul has in mind here in Ephesians 6.11 is is body armor. But it's the same image of, of union with Jesus. He calls it the armor of God. Put on the whole armor of God. Now Paul took this right from the prophet Isaiah. You need to know that that's what's, with under, that's what's underneath all of this talk about the armor of God. Uh, New Testament scholar Peter O'Brien says, Isaiah depicts the Lord of hosts as a warrior dressed for battle as he goes forth to vindicate his people. The full armor of God is the Lord's own armor, which he and his Messiah have worn and which is now provided for his people as they engage in battle. So this may be a a new way of thinking about it, but the the armor of God is the armor that is God's. It's the armor that belongs to him. And since our union with Christ brings us into collision with the devil, God offers us his very own armor. And you'll need it. Because verses 11 and 12 go on to say, this is so that we may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenlies, in in the heavenly places. When Paul says rulers, authorities, cosmic powers, spiritual forces of evil, he's thinking about Satan and and all of his his vast network of demonic underlings on on a global universal scale. Um, Verse 12 reads really intimidatingly, doesn't it? It does, unless you're reading Ephesians whole. Because if you read Ephesians whole, what you realize is that the rulers, authorities, and cosmic powers and spiritual forces are defeated enemies. These folks are mentioned twice before in Ephesians, and each time they are described as an enemy that is back on their heels because of what Jesus has done in his death and resurrection. So, Ephesians 1.21 to 23, 
we read that when God raised Christ from the dead, he seated him far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that's named, not only in this age, but in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave Christ as head to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Hear what scripture is saying? These demonic hosts are enemies under Christ's feet. And furthermore, we are the body of Christ. Uh, Consider it this way. Paul says in Ephesians 3.10 that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. These are the same folks that we read about in chapter 6, verse 12. So don't be intimidated by the reality of of an invisible, real, spiritual enemy. uh, Jesus dealt Satan and the demonic host a death blow at the cross. So our, our adversary is clearly active, that's true, but he's critically injured. He's bleeding out because of the cross. He's a fractured foe, he's a crippled competitor. And Paul says confidently in verse 13, therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. So yes, union with Christ brings you into collision with the devil, but when you are in Christ, you you have access to his power, the spiritual power to battle a spiritual enemy in spiritual warfare. So Paul sets the table there, but we need to move to point two to see a little bit more deliberately what the armor is about. So here's, here's the second point today. You can stand against Satan with the weapons of your Savior. You can stand against Satan with the weapons of your Savior. Now, verses 14 to 17, aren't they the reason we love this passage? Amen. These four verses are a gift to preachers if there ever was one. So let's let's read them. Stand, therefore having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and his shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Now, six separate pieces of armor are named. You see them there. Belt, breastplate, shoes, shield, helmet, sword. Six pieces of armor. And though I do think it's helpful to to have this mental image in our minds, I I do think it's also possible, too, to press the image beyond the breaking point. Uh, In fact, I'm not sure that anyone put this, this temptation any better than John Calvin in regard to this matter. In 1548, Calvin wrote this. Uh, We must not, however, inquire very minutely into the meaning of each word, for an allusion to the military customs is all that was intended. Nothing can be more idle than the extraordinary pains which some have taken to discover why righteousness is a breastplate instead of a girdle. Okay, I think that's exactly right. That's exactly right. In fact, I'll, I'll show you a couple of biblical examples of this. In 1 Thessalonians 5, 8... 
Paul calls the breastplate the breastplate of faith. Breastplate of faith. Well, here in Ephesians 6.14, it's the breastplate of righteousness. Well, which is it? Is faith our breastplate or is righteousness our breastplate? Answer, yes. It's, it's not the particular piece of armor per se. It's what the armor is pointing to. Um, another example would be in Romans 13.12. Paul calls this panoply the armor of light. The armor of light. In Ephesians 6.11, it's the armor of God. Well, which is it? Yes, both. Um, it's not the particular piece of armor per se. It's what the armor is pointing to, namely truth, righteousness, peace, faith, salvation, the word of God. See, these are the weapons of our warfare. This is the battle gear that the Lord Jesus Christ offers us. And furthermore, here's probably the most encouraging thing we can note in union with Christ. When you put on the Lord Jesus Christ, you put on all of the armor at once. Don't get wound around the axle about the possibility of forgetting some critical part of your protection. Because when you put on the Lord Jesus Christ, you are buckling on all of the armor simultaneously. He is our armor. For example, he's our belt because Jesus is the truth. John 14, 6. He's our breastplate because Christ is our righteousness. 1 Corinthians 1.30. He's our gospel shoes because he himself is our peace. Ephesians 2.14. He's our shield because Jesus is the author and perfecter of our faith. Hebrews 12.2. He's our helmet because there is salvation in no other name but Jesus. Salvation is found in Christ Jesus alone, Acts 4.12, 2 Timothy 2.10. And finally, he's our sword. He's our sword because Jesus Christ is the word. He's the word made flesh, John 1.1, John 1.14. Truth, righteousness, peace, faith, salvation, the word. You, You can stand against Satan with the weapons of your Savior, with the Savior who is your weapon, your armor. Think about verse 16, for example. Verse 16 speaks of faith. How our our trust in Christ acts like a shield. Now, the shield that Paul has in mind here was a large piece of armor that would have covered a Roman soldier, uh, his entire person. He He could hide behind it, and he needed to because his enemy frequently would dip their arrows in pitch and light them and send them careening their way. So Paul likens this enemy to the strategies of Satan, verse 16. In all circumstances, take up that shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Now, if you could see these flaming darts, right, the fiery arrows of the enemy, you'd never leave the house, right? This sort of demonic activity is too frightening to contemplate, isn't it? It's paralyzing. What's the hope? It's simpler than you might think. The antidote to satanic burning projectiles is faith. Faith in Jesus. We're united to him by grace through faith. He is the author and perfecter of our faith. He is our shield. Uh, One of my favorite Proverbs is Proverbs 30, verse 5. Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. God in Christ is our shield. 
So when you're following Jesus in faith, he is protecting you all the time from the flaming darts of the evil one, even when you don't know it. Three days ago, in Tallahassee, Florida, yet another horrific shooting took place in our nation. This time a gunman opened fire in the library at Florida State University. 21-year-old Jason Durfus, who was in the library at the time, wrote on his Facebook page later that day, the shooter targeted me first. The shot I heard behind me I did not feel, nor did it hit me at all. That night when Jason returned home and he opened his backpack, maybe you know the story, he, he saw a bullet hole. The bullet had entered through his backpack, proceeded into some books that he had checked out only a minute earlier before the shooter came into the library. The slug and the shrapnel were in his bag. He continues on his Facebook post. I assumed I wasn't a target. I assumed I was fine. The truth is, is that I was almost killed tonight and God intervened. There's no way that I should be alive. Those books saved me. God saved me. I know conceptually that he can do all things, but to physically witness the impossible surrounded by such grace is indescribable. To God be the glory forever and ever. Amen. End quote. Okay. The book that took the brunt of the bullet, the Oxford context of Wycliffe's thought, the study of the great 14th century English Bible translator. The shield of faith works a lot like that. Your union with Christ brings you into collision with the devil. But when you're in Christ, when you're following Jesus, when you are minding your own business, trusting in him, you are protected by the shield of faith. When you're in Christ, you can stand against Satan with the weapons of your Savior. One final point today. When you are in Christ, you get to speak to the king himself who supplies your every need in battle. When you are in Christ, you get to speak to the king himself who supplies your every need in battle. Notice what the armor of God is for. The armor of God is for prayer. Verse 19, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplications. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me. The words may be given to me in the opening of my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. One of the primary postures that we ought to take, probably the primary posture we ought to take in spiritual warfare is on our knees. Why? Why prayer right here? Uh, A.C. Dixon, preacher from yesteryear, says this. When we depend upon organizations, we get what organizations can do. When we depend upon education, we get what education can do. When we depend upon man, we get what man can do. But when we depend upon prayer, 
We get what God can do. Amen? Prayer is an act of desperation. And to the degree that you know that you are in spiritual battle, you will pray. You will petition your king. Another author writes, Could it be that many of our problems with prayer and much of our weakness in prayer comes from the fact that we are not all on active duty, yet still try to use the transmitter? We have taken a wartime walkie-talkie and tried to turn it into a civilian intercom to call the servants for another cushion in the den. Yeah. You can pray for health, but why not pray for the, the healing of wounded comrades? James 5, 14 to 15. You can pray for knowledge, but why not pray for wisdom, strategic wisdom in the fight, leadership in the outposts, reinforcement, harmony in the ranks. That Christ would extend his kingdom in this world. When you are in Christ... You get to speak to the king himself who supplies your every need in battle. If you wanted to know who that author was, that was John Piper. And you can go to the Desiring God website and see a list of all the New Testament church, all that they prayed for. And it's couched in the language of battle. It's beautiful. It'll put you to praying. Well, there is a postscript and I don't have much to say about it because we are out of time, but let me, let me read it for us. The final greetings. All scripture is breathed out by God. I'll read this for us. After Paul in, encourages prayer for uh, the saints and for himself, he says in verse 21, so that you may know how I am and what I'm doing. Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord. There's the last reference to union with Christ. We can minister in the Lord. He will tell you everything. I've sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. I love that the last word in Ephesians is the word incorruptible. Your union with Christ brings you into collision with the devil. When you are in Christ, you have access to spiritual power and you'll need it in order to wage spiritual warfare. You can stand against Satan with the weapons of your Savior, truth, righteousness, peace, faith, salvation, the word. And when you're in Christ, you get to speak to the king himself who supplies your every need in battle. There's a prayer in my favorite prayer book outside of the Bible called The Valley of Vision. Uh, The prayer is entitled The Servant in Battle. And I'd like to take this centuries-old prayer and pray it over us afresh as a congregation this morning. Would you bow with me before our King? O Lord, we bless Thee that the issue of the battle between Thyself and Satan has never been uncertain and will end in victory. Calvary broke the dragon's head. And we contend with a vanquished foe 
who with all his subtlety and strength has already been overcome. When we feel the serpent at our heel, may we remember you whose heel was bruised, but who, when bruised, broke the devil's head. Our souls with inward joy extol our mighty conqueror. O thou whose every promise is balm, every touch life, draw near to thy weary warriors. Refresh us that we may gain and again wage the strife and never tire till our enemy is trodden down. May our hand never weaken, our feet never stumble, our sword never rest, our shield never rust, our helmet never shatter, and our breastplate never fall as our strength rests in the power of thy might. In the name of King Jesus, they all agreed and said, Amen.